builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we are again just so grateful that we can gather together in your name. We thank you for all that you have accomplished and secured for us, that the work of our redemption is finished through your shed blood. We thank you that we have right standing simply through faith in you with God and that our sins have been wiped away. Thank you, God, for for all that you've done, and we thank you that we can gather together. We pray that you would minister to us through your word as you know we need. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, spring break is coming up, and um, for the students at His Hill, this is they just have a half week, and Wednesday they all scatter. Um, Patsy and I and Mark and Audrey are taking the 19 second-year students on an eastward-bound road trip. We're going to go and see the Ark in Kentucky, and um, then we're going to go over to Pennsylvania and do a few things there and then make our way back. So we're going to spend about six days on the road, um, 10, 12-hour drives each day, so you can pray for us as we're driving. And then John and Connor are both going to be preaching for me while I'm gone. And then the next Sunday, the 28th of this month, is Palm Sunday, and we'll have testimonies during that time, and then Easter Sunday after that. And the choir will be singing Easter Sunday. Last Sunday, we were looking at the first part of Ezra chapter 3, and I kind of laid some groundwork here about why it was so imperative at this time in Israel's history that they get it right. They'd gotten it wrong for so long in so many ways, and one way that would seem insignificant, but it wasn't, was that they hadn't even let the, the, the land take its Sabbath rest for 490 years. That was just one of many things, and we, we looked at how God had promised Israel in, in Deuteronomy 28 exactly what would happen if they walked with him and exactly what would happen if they did not walk with him. And then in 2 Kings 17 of how we saw that one of the things that happened is they, they lost all distinctiveness. They were no longer could you look at the people of Israel and say, those are God's people. And that was huge because God is a holy God. And and being holy means he is holy other than any other God and holy other than we. He is not just superior to us. He is not just greater in righteousness. He is wholly different. And so it is expected that those who worship God worship him in holiness, that if God is holy, his people be holy. And when his people are no longer distinct, that they no longer look and act like the people of God, there's a major problem. And God says, how can you call, me, call yourselves my people when I am distinct and you are not? And so God had no choice but to disperse them among the nations. And for 70 years they were in captivity. 
And then under a decree that, that Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persian, Persians, um, issues, they are allowed to come back to their homeland. And when they get back, the first thing we saw in chapter three, 3 that they did was build an altar to the Lord. And I made the point last week that that altar was because they recognize now that the biggest problem that they have is that their sin should separate them from a holy God. And they recognize that without God, they are nothing. They have no strength. They have no protection. They have no, no prosperity. That everything depends upon God and a right relationship with Him. So it is impressive. And yet, also, it shouldn't um, be impressive. That they are doing what they should have done from the very beginning, and that is put God first. To deal with sin as only God can deal with it in open confession, coming to him in faith, and letting God remove our sin from us through shed blood. And so in chapter 3 at the beginning, it says that they, um, that they built the altar, verse 2, and Joshua the son of Jozadak and his brothers the priest and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel. That's the first thing they did in order to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. Now, I don't want to assume too much, and um, neither do I want to be... Um, um, you know, it's, it's hard thing about preaching, and you don't know, the, you know where everybody is coming from and the crowd that you preach to, is you don't know how much Bible knowledge people have. And, um, and so I don't want to um, insult your intelligence, but I don't want to assume too much either. And so just to talk for a minute here about what the altar is about. This was not a, a huge um, structure. In fact, everything that we see in Scripture was, was, was typically much more understated than what we would think because God is not wanting us to focus on, on, on the form, but rather on Himself. And so the, the form was important, but it was not to take the place of the reality of what the form represented. And so the altar... You didn't have to have a temple to have an altar. And they don't have a temple yet, but they can build an altar. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was right and proper. And this altar and this place of, of sacrifice could only be in this one location. Prior to David making his sacrifices at when, at the, toward the end of his life, when he had unwisely taken the census and then it, it brought judgment upon the people of Israel, and, and the angel of, of the Lord was standing in Jerusalem to strike down um, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And David went out, and the angel of the Lord was standing there, and David offered to buy from Aruna his threshing floor, and on that threshing floor became the site of the temple. Some historians believe um, that that was also the site of where Isaac was offered up by Abraham. Um, and that was where that later the temple would have been built. And God said from that point on is the only place where the sacrifices could be made on that one location. So it's a very, very important location. And so with that altar, it was just a, a square structure and there was a horn sculpted into each corner of it. The horn symbolizing power and authority and specifically the power and authority of God both to judge sin and also to forgive sin. And when an, when an individual went to that altar, he went there for one purpose, and that was to acknowledge his sin. So if you didn't believe that you were a sinner, then you didn't go to the altar. It was a very public place. It was the only piece of furniture that was attached to 
the temple that any person could go to. You didn't have to be a priest to go there. Beyond the altar, you had to be a priest. You had to be a Levite and of the priestly order to be able to, to, to proceed beyond that. But the altar was a place where everybody could go to, equal access, but it was a place to acknowledge your sin. So you took an animal with you, as prescribed by the law of Moses, often a sheep, sometimes other animals. If you were very poor, it might have just been a turtle dove or something. So you took an animal according to your means, and it was to be um, without blemish, a faultless animal, as the Passover would signify in particular. And as you stood there with that animal, you would place your hands on the head of that animal. You're not transferring anything. It was nothing magical going on. But by placing your hands on the head of that animal, you were identifying with it. And then the priest would cut its throat, pretty gruesome act. The animal would die. They would catch the blood that was being drained from the animal. And then they would put the animal up on the altar, and it would be burned. Very um, dramatic, graphic illustration that sin deserves death. The wages of sin is death. And that there's no way around this. And that the only thing, the only remedy is for a substitute, is for someone or something to die in your place. And we know very clearly from God's word that the blood of bulls and goats does not remove sin. And so it was simply a picture of something greater that needed to happen. That there need to be the blood of one without sin in order to be an adequate substitute for those who are with sin. And so ultimately all of these sacrifices, every one of them pointed to Jesus who would be without sin and who would give himself for us. And so you can imagine how this would just, just burn itself into the consciences of all those that were there, particularly any children that were there watching this. And they would see their dads year after year go down to this place, good men. And maybe their kids would go, and I don't understand how my dad, the best man that I know, has to do this. And it's because no man is without sin. And we all need blood sacrifice. The only remedy, because God is a just God, the only remedy for our sin is that it must be paid for. And either we pay for it, or one who is without sin pay for it. And God, in His love and mercy for us, to satisfy His own justice, sent His Son to die as that sinless substitute for our sin. If you didn't believe that, if you didn't take it seriously, then why waste a perfectly good animal going there? So it spoke of your humility, your honesty, your sincerity, the purity of your faith, to go there at great expense, great sacrifice, and to publicly acknowledge, you don't have it together. You are a sinner, and you deserve to be killed for your sin. Can you imagine the impact that would make on a community where the, where the best men in the community are stepping forward and saying, I deserve to die because of my sin, and I am looking to God to forgive me, and to take away my sin. And there's only one way that can happen, and that is for a sinless blood sacrifice on my behalf. It would have had an, an enormous impact for, for people to have made that kind of public acknowledgement of their sin and their need of God. But again, it spoke so importantly 
that, there, that the, there, the greatest problem I have is not the enemies around me. And it says here in the text that they were terrified of their enemies in verse 3. But the greatest problem I have around me is not my enemies, but it is my own sin. And that there is a holy God. And at all cost, I want to be right with God. So that's what was being stated here. So that was the first thing, because it's the most important thing. The sin barrier must be dealt with. I don't know how many of you have had your sin barrier dealt with personally. It has been dealt with. God has given His Son to die for the sins of all men. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has had their sin paid for. But you must acknowledge. You must acknowledge that you are a sinner and that the wages of your sin, what it rightly deserves, is death. And you must come to the one who has given himself for you and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for me. And receive the gift of eternal life that is offered to you. So even though the payment has been made, unless the gift is received, it will not be applied to you. You must receive the gift. So we don't have a bronze altar to go to today, but we do go before God. The veil in the temple has been torn. We have open access to Him. Our sin should not mean to us, should not think, we should not think that our sin is a barrier in approaching Him, but we must approach Him by faith through Christ and His shed blood. And God willingly and eagerly receives us. Now that's His cause for celebration. When you can come before God, and know that you will not be condemned, not struck down, that is a cause of celebration. The high priest once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies, he went in with trembling. He went in with a rope tied to his ankle. Went behind that, that heavy curtain with, a, with incense in one hand and a, and a bowl of blood in the other hand, and he, and he, and he slipped behind that curtain with that rope tied behind his ankle because he doesn't know if he's going to be struck dead while he's in there. And if he was struck dead, then the rope is for the purpose of pulling him out underneath the drape because nobody would dare go in there and enter into the presence of God. The only thing that gave him the right to come into that room is because he approached on the exact appointed day with blood so that he could sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and he'd be received because of the blood that had been sacrificed. If he did anything out of what God had prescribed, he was a dead man. And the same is true for you and me. God has given one way to approach him. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is not another way. And we approach through faith in Jesus Christ, and when we do, we can approach boldly to the throne of God, as the author of Hebrews says, because we are we are allowed in because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's a reason for rejoicing. And that's why verse 4, it says, And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written. And they offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinances as each day required. And afterward there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and all the fixed festivals of the Lord that, they were, that were consecrated 
from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. So this is the, the fall of the year, and so they're offering, they're celebrating the fall festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Booze. This is the time of year, and it's a time of celebration. But you can't celebrate unless your sin has been removed. And because the sin has been removed, the sin has been dealt with, now they come together and they say, let's celebrate. It was corporate, it was festive, it lasted for days, sometimes stretched into a week or more, and it was something that everybody would look forward to. And it was celebrated in faith. By that I mean that the, what God said is this three times a year, I want all the heads of the households to make their way to Jerusalem, and you better come. And, you, and, and every man was to come to that place three times a year and leave their homes undefended. It didn't make sense. They celebrated, they rejoiced by faith, not by fear. If they were fearful, they would have never gone. But because they're trusting God and they know they have everything to rejoice in because God has removed their sin, they will by faith rejoice. They will by faith celebrate. And they had to trust. And God said, you're going to leave your homes undefended and I will be your protection. But three times a year, you're just going to walk away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you knew what we, what we would think would just happen right here in Bernie if there's three times a year where everybody knew everybody that lives in Bernie goes on vacation and nobody is left behind? You go talk about the looting that would take place. The Israelites had every reason to think the same thing in their day. Much of the time that they lived, it was a time of lawlessness. There were enemies in their midst the entire time that Israel occupied the land. Enemies surrounded them, enemies among them, and God said, I'm big enough for this. Celebrate. By faith. Trust me. I can take care of you. And so they would come together corporately as God commanded and leave the consequences to God, which is how we're all supposed to live our lives. We celebrate. We live by faith. And we live, leave the consequences to God. And it often is a fearsome thing to think what could happen. But we trust God. And then finally, with part that we just read, they laid the foundation. So three things in this chapter. They build an altar. They celebrate before the Lord. And now they build the foundation of the temple. Verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of, of, of King David of Israel. And all they've done is laid a foundation, and it's not that big. That whole temple foundation would have been roughly the size of this building. It's not very big. And, and yet there, it, it's a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of restoration. And they, are, and they are praising God. This is the start of a new day. And in relaying that foundation, they're singing, they're giving thanks, and, they, and an amazing statement that's made um, here talks about the faithfulness of the Lord, and um, picking it up in, in verse 11, and they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And again, it's that key word that's repeated I don't know, it's got to be in the hundreds of times in the Old Testament, loving kindness, hesed, the covenant faithfulness of God. We've been unfaithful, 
but God has remained faithful to his people. And the fact that we are in this land with an altar, able to celebrate the feast, and a temple foundation has been laid, it can only be attributed to the goodness of God. It has nothing to do with what we deserve. So these are people who have been humbled, and they know where their gratitude needs to be expressed. As rebellious as they've been, as awful as they've been, they've lost all distinctiveness prior to this, and still God has remained faithful to them. It's amazing. We have a faithful God. And no matter how messed up we have made things, God remains faithful. His character is unchanging. He cannot forsake us. And God has remained unmoved in his love and his faithfulness to Israel. And loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. It's been 50 years since the sacrifices ended. So just going back in a little bit of timeline here, the temple that Solomon built was destroyed in 586 B.C. Cyrus issued his decree that they could come back into the land in 538 B.C. That was 48 years after the destruction of the temple. And then now, two years later, which would make it um, 50 years, the temple foundation has been laid. So it's been 50 years since the temple was destroyed and the last sacrifices were offered. Remember, they were in captivity for 70 years. But the temple, time from the temple destruction to the laying of the new foundation, only 50 years. That means many of these men would have been old enough to remember it. 70, 80 years old, and they can think back as young men and seeing Solomon's temple with all of its glory. And they look at this slab and they go, we are so far from what we were. We have lost so much. And these old men are sad. And so they're, they're sad. They're weeping. Can you, can you just picture this, what's going on here? Half the crowd is shouting in joy. And the other half of the crowd is weeping as loud as they can. And it's such confusion that people can't tell what's going on. Those that are outside listening going, are they shouting or are they crying? Are they happy or are they sad? And you can't even tell because of the confusion of everything that's going on. I wonder if the young men said, oh, those old guys are always just so grumpy and negative. Can't they just see the good? And I wonder if those old men said, those young whippersnappers, they're just, they're, they think every day is spring break. They just think life is a party. They're so casual. They're so flippant. They're so superficial. Don't they have any knowledge of history? And there's truth on both sides. And I got to thinking about this again, and I thought, you know, here they are together corporately for the first time in 50 years. 70 years when you consider the whole length of the captivity. And some of them are, are heartbroken. 
and others can't even express how joyful they are. And it's a mess. Just like Sunday mornings. Only we're not as emotional. And we don't show our emotions, at least to the degree that they do. But you know, that's the, that is one of the messy parts about corporate worship, corporate assembly. No two people are in the same place. And there will be a good percentage of people on any given Sunday that are just going, life is good. God is good. And there will be a good percentage of people on any given Sunday that are going, I don't know how I'm going to face the rest of this day, much less tomorrow. I remember the different times when we've gone through real heartache in our family. And I, I remember the, the first time, the most vivid time, was when my older brother passed away. And I can remember um, driving into San Antonio um, with my dad and, and just passing hundreds of cars. And, and I'm, I can't even, you know, my dad was driving and, I, and, I can't, and I'm just tears just streaming down my face. And I'm thinking, all these hundreds of cars, and nobody has a clue how much my family is hurting right now. And it just seems wrong. You know, and, and, and people are, are doing their entertainment and watching football and having their celebrating birthdays and celebrating weddings and celebrating babies being born. And my life feels like it's over. That's the messy part of corporate identity. We should all be aware and be sensitive and alert that on any given time when we are gathered together, some are rejoicing and some are grieving. And it's meant to be that way. And those that are, are rejoicing, hopefully that their joy will, will help lift those that are grieving. But there needs to be sensitivity kindness, care. And those that are grieving, hopefully their grief will not rob the others of valid reason to joy, to take joy. So we rejoice to hear two babies were born this last week. Praise God. We praise God with those families. But there are others that are suffering. I think all three of these things that are going on in this chapter, an altar rebuilt, festivals celebrated again, and a temple foundation being laid. If they have one thing in common, it's the corporate nature of those who identify with God. We each have an individual personal relationship with God. But we are part of a body. We are not Israel, the church, and there's not a direct equivalency, as I said last week, between everything that, about Israel and everything that's true about the church. There's not a direct equivalency. We do not have one central location place to go to, contrary to what our Catholic friends would say, being Rome. Or our Muslims would say, being Mecca. We don't have a Mecca. We don't have a Rome. God never intended that for the church. Never intended that there be one central location. 
But I've been thinking about this, and, and, and even though we do not have one place to worship, praise God, one temple that is the focal point for our assembly and our corporate identity, we can go too far the other way and think that everything is individualistic. I still think maybe that's one of the reasons that God has allowed this whole COVID stuff for the last year. So we could just take some restock of just how significant the corporate expression of the body of Christ is. Is it significant or is it not? And I know lots and lots of folks saying that they can worship at home. And I know some people need to be at home. I'm not saying there's not sometimes a need to be at home and you can't be and should not be with the, with the body every time it's assembled. But I'm not talking about that. There are lots of folks that just simply think that they can do just as well at home, watching on computer or TV, as they can with the body. And I would say that is not corporate worship. And that is not the body of Christ. Even though we are each individually a temple of God, and that is true, and the body assembled, the church assembled, is a temple of God. And that is true. There is no place in Scripture that says that one Christian is the body of Christ. We have been placed in a body. And because we are each members one of another, and each member needs the other members, we will never do well on our own. No, I'll say it again, no one Christian is ever called the body of Christ. One Christian is called the temple of God. But there is never a time in Scripture where one Christian is called the body of Christ. We need corporate worship, corporate identity, every bit as much as Israel did. God mandated it for Israel. And I believe he's mandated it for us as well. It is how we've been constituted. And it is how God wants to express our identity with him to this world. So as the world sees us come together and sees us care for one another, love one another, and all the one another's that are in Scripture, there's over 60 of them. I have a friend that's writing a blog right now on all the one another's that are in Scripture. And... Um, it's an amazing study how frequently it says in Scripture, one another, speaking about a body. And we don't have a physical temple we have to go to. We don't have, have feast days, and we don't have an altar. But we are a body, and God has fully intended that we come together as one, and we worship together corporately no matter how we feel. And some will feel like they just can't express their joy adequately. And others will feel that are coming apart at the seams. Some will be great joy and some will be great sorrow. And God says, come together because we need each other. This is the body of Christ.
There is diversity within the community. Diversity of age, race, circumstance, emotion, everything. Had, you know, occasionally people will make inquiries about the church and emails will be sent to me. And um, somebody was just inquiring this last week, and, and do you have anybody in your church over 50? Well, that's an interesting one. I've never been asked that one. And so I wrote back and I said, yes, I haven't done a count, and I didn't get the church directory out and look up your ages, um, but I thought, it's got to be 20, 30%, maybe more. And I told her, I said, 20, 30% of the church would be 50, over 50, maybe more, certainly not less. And so the lady wrote back right away and said, I just wanted to make sure because so many churches now, when you look at their website, it's just all 20-somethings. And, um, and I, well, we've got a lot of 20-somethings. But, yeah, I, th- I think there's a pretty diverse community here in every way. And that hasn't been by anybody here trying to make that happen. It's just what the Lord's doing. The Lord, the Lord is in charge of His body. And he wants it to be diverse, very diverse. So our goal is not diversity. Our goal is Christ and, and to live in oneness with Christ, individually and corporately. But God's goal is that there would be diversity. And one of the th- reasons that it's so good to come together is because we appreciate that we're not alone. And we're not just like everybody else. Everybody's different. Everybody has their own place where they are in their walk with God. And it's not good or it's not bad, it's good that there is this in the body of Christ. It's necessary, it's needed, and it reminds us that we find our identity and our oneness in Christ alone. And then chapter 4, we'll see next time, the enemies abound. There is nothing better in this world than walking in fellowship with God. Corporately, as a body. And there's nothing that this world is going to hate more than individual people walking corporately in their love for God. Assembling freely, worshiping God, crying together, praising together, as one. And the enemy of our souls absolutely hates it. And that's chapter 4. And I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you so much for all that we have in Jesus. And that you've taken people who are alienated, strangers, separated from you, even hostile, and you've made us one in Christ. You've placed us in your body. You've unified us, God, with you and with each other. And I thank you, God, for this unity, this oneness, how we've been not just melded together, but we have been welded together, that we are one. And it is a oneness, God, that even the powers of hell can't break, because it's been secured by the very blood of Jesus. We're not very good at expressing it, and your word tells us to maintain the unity, God, that you've secured on our behalf. And I do pray, God, 
that we would not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. That we would always, all our days, no matter the circumstances, recognize how vital it is for each of us individually and corporately to come together as one. Thank you has got nothing to do, God, with maintaining a building or paying salaries. It has nothing to do with those things. But it is about living out what is true, our union with you and our union with one another. That you, God, would be glorified, magnified in this fallen world that is so disintegrated that when they see the unity of your people, that they would be drawn to Jesus, the one who has brought us together. I thank you, God, for what you did in Israel, and they are a living testimony of your covenant faithfulness, that your loving kindness is forever. Not just on them, but on us as well. And I thank you, God, that this covenant that you have made with us will never be broken because of your covenant faithfulness. I pray that we would just find our rest and our peace, God, not in the circumstances of life, but in you. And that when things are awful, God, then our hearts would still be filled with hope because of you, Jesus, our hope. You are our hope and our life and our peace. And when life is not working, I thank you, God, that none of that changes. You are still hope, life, and peace. I pray that when we're together, God, that we would truly not just be rejoicing in in the fellowship, but rejoicing in you, God, and all that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.